escaped sapiens. Every time we shoot rockets up into space, nose cones are ejected, fairings are dropped, fuel tanks are left up in orbit, and even entire stages. Astronauts drop tools, weapons test on satellites spew shrapnel into orbit, and dead satellites drift on silently for years. There's a lot of junk up in space, and with commercial players entering the game, there's going to be a lot more. Launch windows already need to be timed to avoid flying debris, and the International Space Station needs to shift its orbit to dodge hurtling chunks of metal that would otherwise punch holes through its protective shielding. On this episode of the podcast, I speak with Jonathan McDowell, who is an astrophysicist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, who for decades has been keeping a list of all the objects that humans have blasted up into space and a catalog of all known geosynchronous satellites and their positions. We discuss the severity of the problem, some of the crazy ways that junk has managed to find its way up into orbit, the impact of collisions and deorbits, and the possible solutions to the problem. This conversation was pretty eye-opening for me. I hope you enjoy. I mean, so there are two like branches to my life, right? One is the cosmology and the other is the, the satellites. And, and they came from different places, really, but they sort of started to merge now. Uh, and and uh, the space report was, um, you know, at, when I was like 12, I, I started making lists of rockets and satellites, as many kids do. I just never gave up. And, <laughs> and, uh, 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 um, and then when I moved to Harvard, to the Smithsonian Observatory, uh that was a place which in the 50s had been the information point for america for when is sputnik going over your mm -hmm. town uh and fred whipple and people like that had pioneered you know a lot mm -hmm. of space science there but those people had all retired and and yet the public were still phoning sao to to go you know what's this thing i saw in the sky right and uh, what's this thing i heard about in space and qu pretty quickly, the public affairs people realized that uh, I was someone who could actually answer these questions. And so they kept like, you know, turning me out going, oh, we got this, we got this. Was this. And so in self-defense, I started writing a briefing, weekly briefing for them mm -hmm. on, on uh, you know, these are the space things that happened this week that you might get questions on. And someone said, oh, that's actually quite useful. Maybe you should put it on uh, Usenet. And uh, uh, the, the uh, I don't know, yeah, there's maybe five other people in the world who want to read this, you know, but no, it turns out, turns out people are interested. So, uh, so that's sort of how it began. How, how big is the reader base? Hard to tell because mostly now it's, it's just on the web page and I don't, have a, with a web counter it's uh when it was mainly email uh it was several thousand uh, okay and so presumably I, it's much larger now than that i think so yeah i mean i have you know i have eighty five thousand twitter followers so that yeah. gives you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh which is insane but uh, apparently there are people who uh like geeky technical information who knew uh and uh, so so and i think you know that's come because I've been, you know, I, I try, I do try now that I have a wider um, readership to do a little more explanation of things mm -hmm. and a little more, you know, simplification, but I haven't compromised too much. And I'm still, I still see my main target audience as engineers and scientists mm -hmm. who are frustrated that Aviation Week and the other, you know, sort of techie publications just aren't geeky enough and, <laughs> and don't have enough numbers in them and so so that's sort of been my brand is, is you play to is, that niche I, I play to that niche 
and anyone who finds that interesting is welcome to tag along. In terms of actually getting your hands on the data though, can you get access to all launches or are there some launches that for security reasons, you know, spy satellites, military satellites, are there some things you simply can't get your hands on? Um, up to a point. I mean, the so US uh, intelligence satellite launches and some allied intelligence satellite launches, you know that the launch has happened, mm -hmm. but the Space Force doesn't release the orbital parameters. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a United Nations convention that the US is a signature to that says you've got to say what the orbits of your satellites are. Mm -hmm. uh, but that implementation of that is fairly pathetic, to be honest, because it, it, you, know, it you get that information like two years later, and it's not a complete mm -hmm. set of so so it's, it's better than nothing but so instead for those satellites we rely on hobbyists and okay. uh, amateur astronomers essentially and it turns out that most of these secret satellites are as bright as the brightest stars in the sky and with a with binoculars and a stopwatch <laughs> you can uh, uh and you know like three people in different places you can easily derive their orbits and so it, it's that's one of the really fun things is that really you know orbital determination right goes back to gauss in 1801 <laughs> finding the orbit of series and, and it's it's uh it's it's not uh it's not high tech and if you have a bright thing in the sky attempting to keep it secret is an exercise in futility which makes me wonder why they do keep it secret surely it would be safer if all the orbits were known in terms of collisions and this sort of Absolutely. thing and, and i think that's coming i think they're finally being dragged around to the view that that's going to have to happen uh it, it's um i think partly they're just in denial because they use these big expensive radars to determine the orbits they can't quite get their head around the fact that you don't need that for the big satellites i mean there are some in geostationary orbit that are you know uh, a lot fainter and a lot more challenging and so it wasn't really till the early 2000s that the hobbyists started getting all of those mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you know you need a little bit of a telescope you need uh, uh, maybe a telescope with a ccd but everyone has those now uh and and so yeah, it's it's really one of these things. I, I mean, this rampant overclassification in the national security sphere, uh, um, and it came out, and and it's a tradition. I mean, they 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 started making the orbit secret in 1962, and mm -hmm. and they were worried that the Soviets would target their satellites and, and mm -hmm. things like that, and it never really. Uh, was terribly successful, but they just can't seem to get past it. So um, uh, hopefully attitudes are changing and they're realizing that it's sort of pointless and makes them a laughing stock. Have you taken part in some of these uh, hobbyist, uh, you know, with a stopwatch and uh, calculating orbits yourself? Have you taken part in any of that as I a mean, hobbyist? I've done, it, I've done it once or twice, but, but honestly, I just don't have the time to. Yeah. And, and Boston, where I live, is not the <laughs> best observing site in terms <laughs> of the weather so um uh, so i just you know sit here like the spider in my web and get, mm -hmm. look at all the data flow and let other people do that uh and really what i have to offer is that i've been sort of you know making these lists of rockets for mm -hmm. 40 50 years now and and so i have a lot of knowledge about 
all the satellites that have ever gone up so I can spot patterns and I can, mm-hmm. I can know when I see something happen, I can know what it means a little easier. And, mm-hmm. and so that's been where I've, you know, put my effort and, and just pulling it together, adding some math, doing some orbital calculations, uh, and then trying to explain what it means for the public. Mm-hmm. I, I read back over some of your earlier entries just to compare with your very last one. And there's been quite a change. I mean, recently, I guess China's come into the game and there've been moon landing, Mars landing, their own space station, shooting down satellites, you know, a lot of activity. And then on the commercial side, there's SpaceX and Bezos and Branson just, re- you know, just went up, uh, you know, a week or so ago, when it, whenever it was. It, it seems like we're in a new sort of space race. Do you have any idea? In your mind, why is this happening now? You know, has technology gotten to a, a point where this is able to happen or are there new financial incentives? What's, the, what's your view on what's going I, on? I think there are two things. And, and uh, let's say that there's been several changes in, I don't want to call it a space race. Uh, I think that's a, a, a very Cold War characterization, but uh, I think it, it's a... Um, a dramatic increase in activity in the space sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you like a new maturity uh, of the space industrial sector across the world. And so there have been a number of related but somewhat independent uh, developments. Uh, the first of which was when, uh, you know, the CubeSats were invented in 2003, but they only really were good for student webcams of the world until about 2013 when the miniaturization caught up enough for these CubeSats to do uh, a useful job. And mm-hmm. so now you have all of these startups that can launch CubeSats for a relatively, uh, let's let me put it another way, that, that the, uh, the barrier to entry to space mm-hmm. uh, in, has come down. In the 1970s, you had to be a superpower, right? <laughs> In the 1990s, with uh, there's a company called Surrey Satellite in England that uh, uh, leveraged one of its amateur radio satellites into a bu- Earth imaging bus that it could sell to developing countries. And so a developing country's budget was enough at that point to get you a starter satellite. Mm-hmm. And then with the CubeSat revolution and really starting in the mid-2000s uh, to 2010s, uh, it became feasible on a startup's budget. So what's, um, what sort of budget are we talking about just for the CubeSats? These are small, how big are they? Um, they're, the, the typical ones now are, are uh, about uh, um, 0.3, meter, you know, 30 centimeters long, uh, a foot long hot dog, I think about it. They're, they're, they're uh, um, uh, 10 to 20 centimeters wide. So they're really small things, they're about 10 kilograms. And they, uh, but they can actually do some useful stuff, especially if you have a hundred of them. Yeah. And so, you know, people talked about this for the longest time, but it's finally come true. Uh, and there are a number of large commercial constellations now, uh, planet, which has, uh, several hundred satellites imaging the earth every day. Uh, and, uh, that's partly for, um, uh, resource use management, but it's also really useful for news agencies. So if you saw the stories recently about the new Chinese missile fields and, uh, that were discovered, uh, that came out of imagery from Planet. Mm-hmm. And that, that was, you know, 
the pre in an earlier era, this, the uh, intelligence community might have known about this, but the public wouldn't have done. But but with Planet, journalists can get access to this data and mm -hmm. discover things, and so uh, uh, so that's really changed things. Uh, then the other thing that happened was um, in the '90s we had the dot com boom, mm -hmm. and we made a whole bunch of new billionaires who didn't come out of the financial sector. Mm -hmm. Always when they get their billions want to do boring things like make more money, uh, <laughs> right? They came out of the tech sector. And so you had all these billionaires who had wanted to be space cadets since they were little. And <laughs> so they set up their own space programs. And so I really think that's why we're, we're seeing it now. It's that it's the difference in the, the kids who became billionaires in the 90s compared to who became billionaires in the 80s. Very different interests and motivations. And, and so thanks to that, and you know, Elon Musk with PayPal, Jeff Bezos with Amazon, right, are the classic examples, but there are many more lesser well-known examples. And, and so, so I think that um, uh, that drove the massive uh, private individual investment in space. Uh, and so that came together with this lower barrier to entry uh, and to uh, uh, to make uh, the commercial side of space really take off. Um, the other thing that I think may have played in is the ubiquity of GPS. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, GPS has been around since the 70s, uh, operational since the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, but, you know, the it's the end user widgets that use GPS that have really become pervasive in our society just in the past, you know, 10, 20 years. And, and so it was part of that satellites now carry GPS that make them more capable, you know, that is easier to track and, and do things. Uh, the, so there's whole new applications. For example, there's another constellation that does weather forecasting, mm. not by the conventional, you know, let's look in the infrared at the cloud layers or whatever, they watch a GPS satellite set, setting over the horizon. And the absorption of the radio signal from the GPS satellite on its way to this little weather satellite can let you, uh, is affected by the temperature and pressure of the atmosphere. I've never heard of that before. And so this is called GNSS radio occultation. Uh, uh, Global Navigation Satellite System Radio Occultation, GNSSRO. And, and so it's a way of using the uh, um, atmospheric distortion of a radio signal to back out the temperature and pressure with height profile of the atmosphere. And how does that compare to traditional methods? Is, is it? I, I'm, I'm not enough of an expert to know that. I, 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 it's clearly useful enough that, that it seems to be uh, something that's uh, a whole sector now that, uh, you know, the U.S. has systems, China mm -hmm. has systems. That it's 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 happening quite a lot. So, so you know, that's a, that, that's just one of these unexpected spin-offs, right? That yeah. uh, um, uh, so so I think we're seeing new applications of space. Uh, the Internet of Things has uh, is now you know a lot a lot of data, low bandwidth data that needs to be transmitted home, 
mm. right, in, into the cloud. Um, uh, so in this case, above the clouds often. And, and uh, the uh, um, and and so so uh, in addition to the traditional telecommunications and and imaging uh, applications and and so for a long time, space was one third civilian, one third military, and one third commercial. Mm. And just in the past five ten years, the commercial stuff has blown everything else out of the water and is now completely dominant. I guess the reason, what one of the things I'm curious about is, um, you, you know, originally, you know, if you go back, you know, 60, 50 years, um, there was the the race to the moon, right? So there's this big goal that sort of pushed, you know, progress in space forwards. And then we went to a period where there was the ISS and space shuttle. There wasn't sort of this big directed uh, push towards something. And uh, more recently, I suppose, with, with Elon Musk, there's this push to go to the to Mars. But I suppose, do, do you, it sounds like what you're saying is that these big goal-driven um, missions are not necessarily the most important thing these days. It's more that we're, we've entered a new phase where, uh, you know, there are economic uh, drivers that are sort of taking over. That's right. Well, I, I would say this. People still talk in terms of a space program. We don't talk in terms of a sea program or an air program right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it's the, the atmosphere and the seas are just one of the places that humanity does its stuff. Mm -hmm. And Earth orbit, at least, is, is now in that category. It's just mm -hmm. one of the places where things happen that humanity does. Uh, and, and yes, there are these big gold-driven programs, but there are also just, you know, there's just stuff that goes on. And, and so, and I think people, you know, the public hasn't made that mental transition yet, but, but mm -hmm. The frontier is now really, for a long time, it's been you know beyond Earth orbit, and now it's actually we're starting to normalize the inner solar system. We're mm -hmm. starting to see infrastructure for you know the space out to Mars, uh, uh, dedicated communication satellites in orbit around Mars, that kind of thing. We're going to probably have a GPS for the inner solar system at some point, and uh, to to just a, ser a service industry for the, all the other things that are going to mm -hmm. happen. We're seeing international you know it's not just the superpowers anymore going to mars we have india and uh um uh you know european countries and and japan and so on and and it's not uh and now so now the frontier is moving out to the asteroid belt mm -hmm. and uh uh the um and similarly for human space flight which is the thing that gets the most uh, uh attention and costs the most uh the um you know, the space station is all very fine and we've learned a lot from it, but now the push is, as you say, to, to, to go to the moon and Mars with humans uh, uh, again in the case of the moon. Um, and, uh, and so we've turned over the delivery of astronauts to the ISS to a trucking company. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, um, it doesn't need to be NASA anymore because NASA's job is to do the frontier. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And low Earth orbit is no longer the frontier, uh, and I think it's as simple as that. So, so uh, uh, we really have seen a transition where, where, um, uh, yeah, it's not a major government effort to do things in low Earth orbit now. It's, it's, it is still 
kind of a push to get people to the moon and certainly to Mars. Uh, but but for stuff in orbit, yeah, you just you know you just have a startup and you launch something, and it, it's it's uh, it's it's not that much different from you know starting a mm -hmm. business on Earth. So so that's I think the change. So, so on the commercial side, then, uh, with regards to these most recent launches, do you consider um, Jeff Bezos and Branson astronauts? What, what, what's your view of these most recent? I, I do. So, so the, there's two questions, right? Did they go into space, and do you use the word astronaut to describe them? Uh, and so, as I'm sure you know, I, I you know, re so so back in the '90s when I was really starting my big list of rockets. <laughs> I had to decide, and I was one of the first people to do a big list of suborbital rockets as well as orbital ones. I had to decide what would count and what wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And so I started thinking about where does space begin? And, uh, um, uh, and I pretty quickly figured out that it was somewhere around 80 kilometers. And I finally formalized that in the paper I wrote in 2018 uh, about the Kármán line and why it's really at 80 kilometers. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's been, you know, my argument for, for a long time now that, that anything that goes above 80 is in space, uh, however briefly. And, uh, and then the, the, the astronaut terminology is a little trickier because, you know, words have multiple senses and they evolve. Uh, and uh, so I, you can imagine I mean, if you think about aviation in the early days of aviation, right? Uh, there were some words that were used to describe the early pilots. Uh, pilot is one of them. Uh, airman. Um, aviator. aviator. Right. Flyer. Right. And, and uh, uh, you know, those magnificent flyers in their flying machines kind of thing, right? Where, you know, that, that was largely meant, meant pilot in those days, but now frequent flyer doesn't imply that you yeah. had the controls of the, of the 787, right? Unless something goes really wrong. Yeah, right. And so, um, and so I think we're at a point now where we've been using a bunch of words, uh, uh, space traveler, astronaut, uh, that uh, um, uh, space crew that are now going to start becoming better defined. You know, they, they've been, it's been okay to be vague because everyone's been basically everything. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's got up. Now we're starting to see these different roles, in particular crew and passengers. Mm -hmm. and, so, and, and so the terminology is going to shake out. My prediction is that it will shake out in the way that astronaut means anyone who travels in space and will have another word for the professionals who fly the spaceships, mm -hmm. if there are any, uh, uh, the, uh, like space crew, mm -hmm. uh, or I've been advocating spacer because that's sort of like the 1950s science fiction kind of mm. uh, uh, name, but but uh, and you know by analogy with sailor, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, and uh, um, you know, and the reason I think astronaut is going to uh, be the general term that applies to the tourists as well is that the tourists have an interest in that being the result, <laughs> and the tourists are uniformly super rich and powerful, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that you know you have all of these incredibly influential people who now have a vested interest in making the word go that way, and, and so that's that's why. And I, 
and I'm comfortable with it. I, I think that's re it's, re it's a reasonable way for the world to go as well, seriously. Um, uh, so I, I am not that interested for my purposes in making a distinction between uh, um, who's, uh, uh, who's the truck driver and who's the passenger. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, I'm just making a list of people who have been to this strange place. So in terms of your own writing, actually keeping up to date with the, um, your space report, is it now getting to a point that it's difficult or, I mean, just because there's so much going on at the moment, or are you still able to keep on top of all this? You know, I've got it down to kind of a fine art um, and, and everything, you know, people make fun of my website for its old fashioned uh, look, but uh, it's all optimized so that I can, uh, you know, make my updates in the absolute minimum amount of time necessary. Uh, and so you know, it's all text files in Emacs. Uh, and, uh, and so the, um, uh, so I'm keeping up for now, but you're right that it's, I mean, the, the thing that's really hard is these launches that deploy a hundred different satellites for 50 different organizations. And so every time there's always all these new startups, right? And so I have to not only do, it's not just cut and paste because each one is different mm -hmm. and to add a new one, you know, I'm like, okay, so this has an, a new owner. Mm -hmm. So I have to add the owner to the owner's database and find out, you know, information, research information about that. And then I have to, if it's a new country that that owner is from, I have to add that to the country's list. and. Yeah, and, and so there's all of this, you know, background metadata mm -hmm. that adding a single satellite can, you know, be, be labor intensive. Uh, whereas if it's just, you know, a hundred more satellites from this company that's launched mm -hmm. hundreds before, that's very easy and, and, and very little work. So, so it's, the, it's actually the increased diversity of the players that yeah. is the biggest challenge for me rather than the increased number overall you're going to have to automate this you learn how to do data scraping or something like this at some point <laughs> it sounds like yes and no i mean yes but then the whole point of the the whole fun of it for me is mm. is you know doing this research and learning about new things i wouldn't have learned about otherwise mm. uh and and so uh yeah but there is there is going to have to be a point where i just say give up jonathan's history of space flight 1957 to 2025 <laughs> and yeah. someone else I mean, at some point someone else is going to have to take over anyway so uh um that's and and that's yeah, if anyone listening you know is is really obsessive and, <laughs> and, and, and a librarian at heart then then let me know because because uh yeah i can't do this forever and uh, and so there is going to have to be a point at which i draw a line and and go okay i'm retiring i'm gonna just improve and improve and improve the list of space launches from 1957 to end date and make that really good for the history. Okay, and, and what I've told other people is I, the reason I do this is actually not for my current readership. The reason I do this is for the historians a thousand years from now, mm -hmm. uh, because I got really frustrated at the way that information about what actually happened in space was disappearing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the professional historians are more interested in uh, the sort of office politics of how the thing gets funded and so on. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of official histories of space projects are like 90% pre-launch 
and 10%. Oh, and then they launched the thing and it worked fine. Wait, so is there data on your report that it has disappeared otherwise or? I think, I mean, oh, there's, I have stuff in my library here that is the only copy left in the world because the company went out of business and if I hadn't dumpster dived them the previous year, <laughs> you know, uh, or, 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 you know, the government agency just threw its records away uh, or if I hadn't, you know, harassed that project manager to telling me this number, yeah. <laughs> it would never have gotten written down anywhere permanent. Uh, and, and because when a project, you know, there's all this paperwork you have to do, right, to get your satellite launched. Yeah. And once you launch, you often don't have a lot of time to write things down because mm. you're so busy. And then the mission ends, especially if it ends prematurely, and you get taken on to the next project. And in the early days, like if you look at, so the Ranger probes to the moon in the early 60s, there are these fabulous post-mission reports, hundreds of pages long that give mm. every geeky detail of what happened, right? And at a certain point, they stopped funding those and, and, uh, and you never get them now. These like, yeah, I'm writing this a year after the mission ended. And this is the timeline of what actually, uh, what actually happened during the mission as opposed to what was planned to happen. And, and so I'm the first order, the only person who bothers to write this down. And, and so if someone in the future wants to go back and go, all right, where did this probe actually go? When did it reach Mars? When did it touch down? What, what went wrong? You know, that I'm trying to preserve that information in a, in a uniform way, right? Mm -hmm. So that you can do that for any, any mission. Uh, and, uh, uh, and it's just, especially now in this day of pure electronic records, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of the technical data is internal and electronic and probably won't get backed up properly yeah. and probably won't exist 10 years from now. And I suppose also, even if it does exist, then finding that data, I, I guess part of the value of what you're doing is it just that it's all together in one place in exactly. some consistent yeah. form. So in terms of tracking uh, objects then, what percentage, since we should get onto topic at some point, <laughs> what percentage uh, is space junk and what per percentage is you know, active uh, and useful equipment? Right. So the first thing is you, you have to set a threshold, right? Because in low orbit, the radars can detect things down to about 10 centimeters in size. Hmm. And we know that there are probably about a billion objects in Earth orbit uh, uh, above a millimeter in size. Okay. Right. And but we can't track them. Uh, and that is all just debris, right? And uh, it, it's, uh, so, so let's just talk about the cataloged object population of 10 centimeters and up. Mm -hmm. And it's in, at higher altitudes where the radars can't reach and you're reliant on telescopes, it, it's, uh, it's incomplete. Mm -hmm. But it still gives you an idea. So we're tracking about 23,000 objects in Earth orbit every day. And about... 4,500 of those are active working satellites. Okay. And then the rest goes to about, there's about 2,000 dead satellites still in orbit. Okay. There's about 2,000 rocket stages left over from, from launching them. There's about another 2,000, what I call litter, 
uh, like um, spanners and things that astronauts drop, well, yeah, and mostly sort of like uh, fairings, you know, nose cones and 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 connectors and mm -hmm. deployment devices and things mm -hmm. like that. But yeah, lens caps as well, <laughs> that that sort of thing. Um, and then there's about twelve thousand pieces of. I want to say accidental debris. It's not all accidental because some of it's from military weapons tests, but but you know, uh, um, explosive or fallen off debris. Uh, mm. uh, and so a lot of that is from if you if you launch a rocket and you don't use up all its fuel, you have leftover fuel and oxidizer in the tanks, and this thing sits orbiting the Earth for several years, and then the sort of O-rings between the tanks erode. <laughs> And suddenly, where you had yeah you know, one object that you were tracking, it comes over the next time, and your radar see three hundred objects, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of kinetic energy. Uh, and you have to give a number to each one of those officially. Oh, or? absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so uh, uh, because you you know they're going to come over the next, uh, and here's the problem, right? You've got a hundred objects that come over your radar, right? Mm -hmm. And then 90 minutes later, you have another the hundred objects come over again. And your your task is is object number 34 from the second pass the same object as object number 48 from the first pass. Mm -hmm. Is it the, I guess you have to work out which object exploded as well. If objects are fairly close to each other, that could be a problem. That, that's true. It, it it's mostly easier than you might expect. There are some conserved quantities in the orbital elements mm -hmm. uh, that uh, that make that sleuthing actually fairly tractable most of the time. As long as you get, as long as you don't. Uh, sometimes you find an object that that was that separated from its parent, you know, two years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's a little harder uh, because, uh, especially if there's a constellation of objects in the same plane, and uh, uh, so so with similar conserved quantity parameters, but it's just you don't know which one it, it drifted off, mm -hmm. uh, and and so um, uh, so it can be tricky, but mostly it's tractable, uh, and so yeah, you 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 have all of this stuff to to keep track of. It, it's uh, so yeah, there's the exploded rocket stages. Batteries have a tendency to explode. Um, anything that has stored energy, right? Uh, and then there's accidental collisions, which are not a big deal yet, although there was one big one in 2009. And then there's anti-satellite weapons tests, which are just, you know, they shouldn't happen, but they do. Uh, it, it's just inexcusable, I think. How, how often do those happen? How, how many of those have we had? Well, over the age of the space age, uh, we probably had I, I, about 20 or 30. Um, uh, the Soviets did some in the 1960s. They were the first one was in 1968. Uh, and then uh, the US did a couple in the, in the 80s. And, uh, and then there have been the Chinese and Indian uh, ones in the past several years. Um, and uh, and some of them were done at low altitude where all of the debris re-entered within a few years mm -hmm. uh and some of them like the, the chinese test happened right in the middle of sun synchronous orbit at a high altitude and that debris there were i think three thousand objects cataloged and about okay. over half of them are still in orbit now 10 years later when was that uh rocket test that the chinese did that, that was 2007 
Uh, there was, I mean, debris can step for a long time if it's in high orbit. So roughly speaking, right, I, I've started encouraging people to, we, we talk about LEO, low Earth orbit is a term that people may have heard. And, and low Earth orbit is between about 200 kilometers and 2000 kilometers mm -hmm. above the Earth. But I've started talking about lower LEO and upper LEO mm -hmm. Uh, because at about 600 kilometers, there's sort of a dividing line uh, where below that, things are going to re-enter in a year to 20 years uh, due to the thin outer atmosphere. And above that, things are going to stay up for decades to centuries. Mm -hmm. so, so why did they do this test higher up? Was that because they wanted to see, you know, the effectiveness of their weaponry uh, at higher altitudes? Or because, Frankly, it was because they were idiots. Uh, in particular, mm -hmm. it was because the test was done by the ballistic missile people and they didn't talk to the space people i see so, so what they, they literally shoot a rocket up that's that's is yeah. that the only type yeah. of weapon or do no, they, uh, there are several types this particular type of the chinese test was yeah it was just a missile that they fired up uh, and that it managed to be in the same place at the same time as this satellite uh, and the satellite's own, you know, relative, uh, the satellite's going at 18,000 miles an hour, right? <laughs> the missile's going slower, uh, so the relative velocity is large. And so if you physically contact, then that's a lot of uh, um, momentum transfer. I see. That, uh, that, that makes a hypersonic shockwave go through the, uh, uh, the object and, and reduce it to shrapnel. Um, and uh, there are other approaches. So the early Soviet tests were what were called co-orbital. The, 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 it actually, the, the satellite went up into an orbit near uh, the, other, the target satellite and released shotgun pellets in a high explosive warhead because uh, they couldn't target it accurately enough to actually hit. But if they, if they released like 2,000 pieces of shrapnel, Perfect. one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really great. Thanks. Um, uh, the um, has there been another kind? Th th those have been the two main kinds used uh, in practice. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, uh, I think that the Indian test and the more recent. Uh, um, oh, there was another type that was deployed by the U.S. in the '60s that never actually got tested live. It got tested against fake targets with dummy warheads. Mm -hmm. But that was instead of actually hitting the satellite just launch a missile near the satellite and explode a nuke in front of it. Wait, that's been done? Not, not actually with the nuke, uh, uh, but they had, they had Thor missiles with live nukes sitting on Johnston Island in the Pacific, ready to do this if they ever needed to. <laughs> uh, and then they would take the live nuke off, put a dummy warhead on and do a test launch okay. to check that they could get close enough to the target. Um, the, well, they did, uh, and they knew that it, it were, the effects it would have because in 1962, they did a test where they, they uh, not against a satellite, it, it wasn't meant to be against a satellite, but um, they, they uh, did a nuclear test at 500 kilometers altitude okay. uh, and uh, with one of these rockets. And um, it created an artificial Van Allen belt that lasted for about five to 10 years. Okay. So this is like ionized particles that are... Uh, yeah, re relativistic ionized mm -hmm. particles are, uh, uh, surrounding the Earth in a radiation belt. And about, there were only a couple dozen working satellites at the time in 1962. 
and over the next six months, about half of them died because their solar panels were irradiated by all this crap. And uh, uh, so um, it was it was not a good experience. But uh, uh, yeah, so 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 yeah, the, the 90, early nineteen sixties was a, was a time right when when people would go. I wonder what would happen if we blew up a nuke in outer space, and the authorities would go, "Huh." cool let's try it and see <laughs> it's <laughs> and, a golden age yeah right, right yeah none of this sort of you know review or mm. environmental impact assessment um and and so you know you name it it's been you know, they there'd be there were plans to do not do a nuke on the moon but they never actually got around to that um uh so um uh, so yeah the, there were several like nukes in space things. so that was that's another form of debris um <clears throat> uh Parenthetically, another form of debris that we have is that the Soviet Navy loves nuclear reactors, or did, uh, I should say, uh, Russian Navy now. Um, uh, and they had this uh, spy satellite that would use radar to track the U.S. Navy. Mm-hmm. And the radar needed a lot of electricity to run it. And so they put nukes, uh, they put actual nuclear reactors. We're not talking these wimpy Voyager style radio radio isotope generators that just run thermocouples of decaying plutonium we're talking about u235 critical fission reactors on a satellite <laughs> as your electricity supply and so unfortunately one of these re-entered over northern canada in 1978 and threw radioactive debris over over large areas of um saskatchewan and uh um so that wasn't great uh and uh but they said mostly in in operation they boosted the reactors up to a thousand kilometer orbit so they would stay up there but that mechanism broke i'm guessing Hmm? that mechanism mechanism broke broke on the on the the one (laughs) yeah but even even the ones that that uh succeeded right now you've got these dead nuclear reactors orbiting the earth and uh um some of them had leaks and so uh there's this sodium potassium liquid metal coolant that they use uh that leaks out probably radioactive i'm guessing because it's been next to the nuclear reactor and and this liquid forms perfect little spheres mm. as it as in in uh uh in space it's it freezes into, into little spheres and so you've got this whole belt of tiny little sodium potassium reactor coolant spheres around the earth uh that's a significant contribution to the debris population at that altitude and so so all kinds of stuff there was also the um uh, project westford i don't know if you've heard of that one is that Uh, the one where they shot up all the little pieces of metal yeah copper needles several hundred million copper needles uh, uh, smushed into like a cylinder about this big, kept together with um, paraffin or something that that, that yeah. sublimes once on orbit to dispense the needles. And so, so you got those up there. That most of them are re-entered, but some of them are still up there. What uh, was that? That was to bounce signals. Uh, off. Yeah, passive. This is before they had active communication satellites. I thought yeah. maybe the way to do it is just have this passive uh, reflector that had you know dipoles of this particular length that would then reflect radio waves at that particular frequency uh and and so you could use that to bounce radio signals uh down to somewhere else but that's mainly cleared up 
by now, you said. Mainly cleared up, but there's still there's still a few million of these things in orbit, probably. The, Too small to track individually. The spy satellites with the radioactive sources, I, I'm guessing, so you said they need a lot of power to run. I, I'm guessing the reason why you can't run them off solar panels is they're low, and so they cause drag or something. Is, is that the reason? No, it's that the Soviet 1970s solar panel technology was just not good enough. I see. But they could have done that with solar panels, potentially. Uh, if they'd had good enough ones, yes, yes. And nowadays, there are radar satellites that use solar panels. Mm -hmm. Is yeah. there, Have there been cases of anyone intentionally shooting down someone else's satellite? No. There, there, there's been no aggressive move like that in, in space yet. Uh, so always the tests have been against one's own satellite. Well, mm -hmm. all right, slight exception. Um, uh, the U.S. Air Force shot down a U.S. shot a U.S. Navy uh, satellite <laughs> that was returning excellent astronomy data. <laughs> and so the uh, um, you know obviously it was approved at some high level, but I, the the urban legend goes that the astronomers who are using the solar physics data coming from the satellite had not been informed and were surprised when their data stopped flowing. So when when um, so <laughs> with this. Uh... Land, well, this uh, re-entry of the Soviet uh, spy satellite over Canada, over Saskatchewan. Does anyone, does Canada sue? Yeah. <laughs> Russia so there, or... is, there is, there is something called the liability convention that, that, that says if I cause, if I fall on your head from space, uh, I'm liable. And um, they didn't actually implement, uh, use that. I, I think it was sort of settled out of court, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but in the end, the Soviet Union paid about $3 million for the cleanup effort. The, only the, uh, yeah uh, i think canada asked for well i mean this is 1978 dollars right mm -hmm. but uh um uh i think that canada asked for 10 and they eventually got three or something like that mm -hmm. so it was some um, uh so it was it was settled to the partial satisfaction of the parties involved but not yeah except for those living in Sask saskatchewan i guess right i mean it was you know it was way out i mean it was a fairly low population area but not zero of course uh, mm -hmm. uh first nations people li live there um and so a lot of uh, and there was no actual uh physical damage uh I mean, there's no actual damage to uh, say property that i know of but they did you know it was very expensive because you found like beryllium control rods from the nuclear mm -hmm. reactor melting holes in the ice <laughs> right <laughs> and you've got these pictures of people in hazmat suits with tongs like you know recovering these these bits and going around with geiger counters picking up the little bits of uh, radioactive material that they found everywhere mm -hmm. so it um uh you know it was fortunate that it was such a low population area and not you know over a city or something like that so do we have, um, so most, mostly what you've been mentioning is um, sort of lower Earth orbit and orbiting around the Earth. Uh, is there also junk in our Lagrange points around the Earth? Are those sort of shockers as well? Um, so the thing to understand about the Lagrange points is that, that so the Lagrange points, right, for people who don't know, are these uh, gravitational balance points, for example, between the Earth and the Sun. Uh, and so the popular ones are called L1. There are five of them, L1 through L5. And the ones we mostly use are L1, which is the point where the Earth's gravity balances the sun uh, at about a million miles towards noon. And then the L2 is a million miles towards midnight. It's this sort of counterintuitive one 
where as you orbit the sun just beyond the earth, you can actually stay hovering over the earth because uh, this, uh, you're trying to orbit at a certain speed, but then the earth just, uh, uh, just ahead of you drags you on that little bit extra. Uh, and so you have this weird balance thing. Um, and we use this for astronomy satellites a lot, uh, particularly the amazing Gaia satellite, which is uh, a European satellite mapping the galaxy, is out there at L2. But when we say at L2, it's actually orbits around this imaginary point in space. You can sort of uh, treat, it, treat it even though it's an empty point, you can treat it as mm -hmm. if it's something you can orbit. And the radius of that orbit is actually something like the radius of the moon around the earth. It's an enormous thing. Okay. So the size of the L2 point is, is like half a million kilometers across, <laughs> right? So it's not something yeah. where, where we're gonna run out of space tomorrow. Right, uh, and also if you leave junk there, over a period of about a year, that junk is gonna be perturbed mm -hmm. uh, by the gravity of the sun and the moon uh, into orbit around the sun or potentially, but less likely back into earth orbit. And so it won't stay there in the long term. Uh, so in order to stay there in this, in this weird looping orbit around invisible point, uh, the science satellites have to like do a tiny little push of their thrusters every couple of months. Uh, uh, so it's not fully stable. And so, so the that's quite, that's quite nice. Actually, it means you've got this resource, which you can essentially use forever. You have your satellite that you want to live for 20 years and then it will slowly. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, a, that, that's right. And there's a, there, there's a whole host of reasons why L2 is a great place for a science satellite to be. Um, having said that, you know, we are now, I, I, uh, the, as we see the inner solar system become this arena for not just the superpowers, but for countries, uh, you know, all different countries and uh, private companies like, like SpaceX, um, we are starting to get, I, I, I'm, I have a catalog of over a thousand objects that have gone out beyond the earth. And it's no one's, paid job to actually keep track of these hmm. uh and it's not really a threat from the point of view of you know you might bump into them uh but it's annoying for asteroid discoverers who think they've discovered an asteroid and it turns out actually be some old rocket stage that just came back to the earth after 20 years in solar orbit uh and so uh and there are other reasons uh, uh you want to know, you'd like to know the orbit of these discarded rocket stages because for planetary protection. So mm -hmm. we don't want to contaminate Mars or the moons of Jupiter with biological materials before we've fully ruled out that there's anything there to be contaminated. Mm -hmm. And, and so, uh, so what you do when you launch a Mars probe, right, is actually you aim deliberately a little bit away from Mars. Mm -hmm. And then once your probe is separated from the rocket, you you correct the orbit of the probe to aim aim at Mars, and that way the rocket misses and just stays in orbit around the sun, uh, and so it doesn't go close. It doesn't go too close to Mars, right, uh, where it might hit and contaminate because the rocket is not sterilized. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize right. that. Uh, and and so so you 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 spend a little extra money for a little extra fuel to deliberately miss and then re-aim the one bit that you actually want to get there. Um, but the thing is, now you've got this rocket station orbit around the sun, 
and 20 orbits later, it could still hit Mars. Mm -hmm. And you're hoping that, you know, all the bacteria on it have been sterilized by the UV from the sun by then, I guess. Uh, but still, it would be nice to know and not just lose track of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I've been advocating that we need a, you know, a NORAD, a space tracking or at least space cataloging organization for deep space that we just don't have right now. Uh, uh, because you, until you, until you know what's out there, you can't have really any governance and, and you need, you're going to need governance and coordination when you have all these different players out there. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it's out of sight, out of mind. It's going to be very hard to convince people this is important until something goes wrong. Right? Yeah. That's usually the problem, right? It's, it's any environmental problem only gets attention when it's almost too late. So did we, did in terms of space junk generally, did we, when did we realize this was a problem? Well, let's see. The first real space debris event was in June of 1961. Uh, a rocket stage that launched some Navy satellites blew up and created about 300 pieces of debris, of which about half, again, are still in orbit. Uh, and uh, But really, people didn't worry too much about it until um, the late 70s. Uh, when we saw a whole bunch of these rocket stages blow up after uh, five or 10 years after having been launched, right? Uh, and, uh, and then people went, okay, we need to do something about this. And so <clears throat> what they did was design the next generation of rocket stages to be restartable uh, so that they could do what's called the depletion burn after they delivered their satellites and lower their orbits or re-enter entirely, and also, mm -hmm. importantly, use up whatever leftover fuel there was mm -hmm. uh, so that there wasn't this, they weren't ticking time bombs anymore. Uh, <clears throat> and that's a making your rocket stage able to start in space uh, as opposed to during the launch phase is actually a bit tricky because you, you, you have this rocket stage floating in space and it's like, you know, it's got, 10% of its fuel left, right? And that 10% of its fuel is floating in the middle of the fuel tank, hmm. not down where the the, uh, the exhaust is. Okay, and there's so no gravity. Have, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so you have to persuade the fuel to go to the bottom of the tank before you ignite the engine. Hmm. So uh, you need some other, you need some other mechanism in there right, that sucks it in. You have motor that's a smaller okay. little uh, maybe a little solid rocket motor or something that gives this whole stage just a little push to settle the propellants at the bottom of the tank before you ignite the main engine. So it's a whole, you know, it's a whole thing, right? But so uh, is, is the space junk issue, is it more or less an engineering issue from the point of view that, you know, if, if, if we designed our spaceships and our, our craft appropriately to take care of this issue, we shouldn't need to, you know, actively remove uh, space junk from this point out as long as we, you know, design mechanisms which uh, account for what we're from now going to be shooting up into, into space? Well, you've still got to remove the satellites and rockets themselves from orbit, mm -hmm. right? Because especially in the quantities we're launching them in now. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, if you require that every satellite and every rocket has the ability to remove itself from orbit at the end of the mission, instead of just leaving it there. Um, you would mostly solve the problem, except for all the stuff that's up there already. Uh, 
and I think we are at a point now where there's so much stuff up there already that even w- without launching anything else, you're going to have collisions and you're going to have increase in debris. And so we really need the space garbage trucks. We need to remove the top hundred or so big pieces of junk in orbit just to reduce the collision probabilities. So what happens if we do nothing? So worst case, let's imagine we just, you know, put our fingers in our ears and completely ignore that this is a problem. Uh, What's worst case scenario and what are the timescales that we're looking at? Yeah. So the good news is that the timescales are decades. Uh, it's, it's, It's not like the movie Gravity where, you know, there's a chain reaction in Earth orbit that runs to completion in about 10 minutes. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you know, we're seeing this slow motion chain reaction, essentially. We had the first collision. We're going to have another one, you know, sometime. And, and, uh, uh, and so the, the end result is that you have a runaway, uh, you have a chain reaction of things hitting other things uh, and reducing the orbital population to shrapnel uh, and making a Saturn's ring made of aluminum around the earth, uh, that, uh, that would be, uh, that would make it very difficult to use low earth orbit. Or even to gain, I guess, astronauts have to fly through this as they're entering orbit, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and so, yeah, you'd have a shell around the earth, uh, uh, and, uh, um, it's already becoming difficult to schedule launches. Uh, in the gaps between the debris coming over. Have, have they had collisions with uh, launch vehicles uh, during launch? Not during launch. No, it's not that bad yet, but because uh, they do, because they do take care uh, mm-hmm. uh, to avoid that risk. Um, it, it's more, you know, it's annoying work to have to, you know, run all the, uh, to schedule around them, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's, and, and, you know, there have been lots of minor collisions. Uh, you may have seen the um, uh, bullet holes in the space station mm-hmm. where pieces of debris went through a solar panel. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so that, that happens. Um, the bigger collisions that would generate, that would just totally destroy a satellite and make lots more debris are, are still uh, very rare. And mm-hmm. so, so... So what's my chance per year? So if I put up a satellite, what's the chance that it gets taken out? in any given year depends on the orbit but yeah i would i would say um let's see if there are four thousand satellites and we have i'm guessing the collision rate is of order one per 10 years one per 20 years something like that for a big for for a uh fatal collision as Mm -hmm. opposed to just a damage collision uh and so and so per year uh that's one in uh 80,000 or something mm-hmm. like that, right? Uh, for, for any particular satellite. Mm-hmm. But then smaller uh, collisions that don't actually kill the satellite, I'm guessing that happens more often. That happens more often. And, and I would say, you know, uh, after 10 years in orbit, you probably will have had at least these minor collisions, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and probably they won't have damaged you, but maybe they're degrading your insulation or... Uh, uh, you know, if you're unlucky, right, it went through uh, a critical wire in your solar panel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so there, yeah, so I, I think it's a real problem. Um, uh, certainly, you know, in the ISS, which is a big target, it's soaking up, you know, I mean, there are many little dings that it has. 
Mm-hmm. Is, has there been any significant damage that they've actually had to go out and repair? Uh, not on ISS, no. They well, they had. I think they had an issue where they had, um, you know, they had rough edges due to a collision on the airlock ring, and they had to sand it down or something like that. But uh, it's that, cutting that, up the space suit, uh, the astronaut suits or something. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that that kind of worry, rather than oh, the solar panel is going to fall off or something like that. Uh, and uh, but there have been satellites that have been seriously damaged. Uh, uh, there was a French military satellite who's had, had a gravity boom, which is like a stabilization thing, and it got sheared off by a piece of debris. Hmm. In in terms of um, this, so the space station they move, right? Do they do that only with uh, rockets, or you know, c- can the station also change shift? around by changing its shape you know like a, how a cat would flip around do they do this or yeah so they have momentum wheels uh and so they have you have you have spinning wheels right uh around three di- three of them around three different axes <clears throat> and you can exchange angular momentum between the wheel and the station they actually okay i did not know that, that... and th- and that lets them turn the the thing in some direction that doesn't really help for avoiding debris because your cross section is about the same. But astronomy satellites use this for pointing at a new target. So I work on the Chandra X-ray Observatory. <coughs> Excuse me. And we, um, uh, so when we've finished looking at one black hole and now we want to move to look at this black hole on the other side of the sky, right? We exchange angular momentum between the spacecraft and its internal spinning wheels. And so we can do that without using up any rocket fuel. But, but in terms of uh, the ISS, you, you, that's not done for avoiding uh, debris? Not for avoiding space debris, because it doesn't change where the center of mass of the station is. But the station's like a, it's like a pancake, right? It's not... Eh, ish. I mean, it's, it's uh, I mean, you know, it's got these huge solar panels at slightly different angles. It's got, uh, at a different axis, it's got the uh, um, pressurized modules uh and so it's 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 not as pancakey as you'd like um mm-hmm. uh in that sense uh and and usually the error bar on where the where the uh, one of the problems right is that you can't predict if i have a satellite and i know its orbit i only know its orbit to a certain level of accuracy and if i if i go this is going close to the space station a day from now mm-hmm. um my prediction on exactly where that satellite is going to be a day from now depends on a whole bunch of things that I don't know perfectly, including what the solar activity is going to be for the next 24 hours that will affect the density of the upper atmosphere that will affect the drag and so on. And so I have an error bar on where that satellite is going to be as it passes the space station that could put it on either side of the station. Right. And so you're just as likely to move your station sort of into the path of it as you are out of the path of it. So, I see, I see. Yeah, better to move the whole, if you're worried, better to move the whole station by doing a rocket burn and raising its orbit by a couple hundred meters or something. How often do they do that? Or have um, they haven't done it lately. Uh, they've done it about 20 times in the, in the history of the station. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess they're doing that anyway, just to keep lifting it up. So it's yeah, not a big they, deal. They, right? Exactly. They they do. It's a question of how much warning you get because they do they do reboost burns every couple months. Mm-hmm. And I guess when they do that, they calculate. Okay, if we do the boost at this point, then we're going to be avoiding anything for the next you know years. Let's say. 
that we know about uh, this in orbit? Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't, you can't do it years in advance. Uh, so mm. it, it's more, it's more that something risky comes along every few months, and mm-hmm. you, you get maybe four days warning. I see. Right. So, so what happens eventually? Okay. When's when's the end life of the ISS? When when we want to bring that back down? What's the what's the protocol? You know what what? Yeah. So the protocol is you dump it in the South Pacific, okay. far from shipping lanes. And so what you do is you dock uh, a uh, cargo ship to the station, mm-hmm. and lower its orbit enough so you fire in the direction of motion to slow its speed, and that lowers its perigee down. Low it, lower, but not so low that the drag is so much that you lose the ability to, to control, control the station, right? And then you launch another cargo ship <laughs> full to the gills of propellant because uh, one isn't enough to, to go all the way in one go. Uh, and, and now you fire that one to get it from where it was down to dropping the perigee into the atmosphere in the right place. Right, and, uh, and so you 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 make sure that it re-enters at the right place at the right time, uh, and they did this for Mir, the old Soviet space station, back in two thousand one, uh, um, and so you know there's this form for this, uh, uh, and uh, so it comes in at so it's it's basically you go from a four hundred by four hundred kilometer circular orbit to a, a maybe like 250 by 250 kilometer orbit to a 250 by 30 kilometer yeah. orbit, right? And once you're in that ellipse, uh, so you fire the engines at the high point, right, to turn, to lower the perigee, to lower the opposite end of the orbit into the atmosphere. And so 45 minutes later, you come round to the other side of the Earth and you're 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 entering the atmosphere at eighteen thousand miles an hour. Uh, mm-hmm. So the air is pretty large on that, right? <laughs> well, the the I mean, you but it's not in the sense that you know exactly where it's going to enter, right? Mm-hmm. Or pretty much exactly. I mean, there's some error. There's a hundred miles error in where where it's going to hit, but not thousands of miles, right? Where uh, because you're in this thing where you know it's trying to get to this low point at 30 at this particular place and it can't do it because it hits the atmosphere. Uh, whereas if you just leave it in a circular orbit and let the circular orbit shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink as it goes round, so that the drag, the, it's constantly fighting against the atmosphere instead mm-hmm. of fighting it at one particular point of the orbit, you know, mm-hmm. then you have no idea at what mm-hmm. point it's going to break up. And that's, for example, for that Chinese rocket stage that re-entered earlier this year. So we had no idea until after the event to within many thousands of miles where it would re-enter. Uh, because so what went wrong there? I'm guessing they, they lowered its orbit because they didn't want to create space junk. And this was the alternative that they decided upon. Right. Well, it's, I mean, the thing is, this was a 20-ton rocket stage. Mm-hmm. And normally we don't leave those in orbit. Uh, the, the standard way that everyone else uses is that you use that rocket stage to get almost to orbit, mm-hmm. have little engines on your payload to go the last little bit. Mm-hmm. And that way the rocket stage is, is in one of these suborbital trajectories that then comes down and mm-hmm. crashes in a predictable place. But that was not done here? Or that was what? not. The Chinese decided we don't care. We're going to take the risk. We're going to leave this 20-ton rocket stage in orbit and have it fall out of the sky 
in some random place because most of the earth is ocean. So, you know, we'll play the odds. Uh, and, you know, this latest time they were lucky and mm -hmm. re-entered in the Maldives, uh, but in the ocean, in the Indian Ocean and didn't hit anyone. The previous time they launched it, they weren't so lucky and it, it, uh, pieces of metal hit villages in the Ivory Coast. Uh, this seems uh, pretty naughty. So what, but there's also yeah. been other cases, didn't, was it Skylab that came down in yeah. Australia? So what happened there? Right, exactly. So that was, again, we were talking about in the 70s, people starting to get uh, pay attention to space debris. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the sem other seminal events was that uh, um, uh, Skylab did not have a propulsion system. Mm -hmm. uh, the atmosphere, uh, the idea was when people started worrying about this, well, you know, we'll build the space shuttle and we'll reboost its orbit with the space shuttle. Hmm. And then two things happened. They didn't really properly take into account the solar cycle that uh, meant that in the late 1970s, the atmosphere was denser than it had been when they launched it. And so the rate of decay accelerated. Plus the space shuttle was like five years late. Um, and so, uh, so Skylab re-entered uncontrolled essentially. Uh, and, and yeah, large, it was a 70 ton object mm. and, and large pieces of it ended up in the Australian outback. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, um, the, uh, you'll appreciate this. I, I, I remember the NASA TV coverage or NASA live commentary where they went, okay, so it's over the, it's passed over India. It's over the Indian ocean. Now, um, it's now past the last inhabited area that it could hit. There's only Australia. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, I don't think you wanted to say that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, so yeah, it, um, that woke people up. And since mm -hmm. then it's since then that, uh, uh, this idea that you don't leave big things in orbit to re-enter and control uh, arose. And so since then, they started uh, on the largest objects uh, like space stations, adding rocket engines to deorbit them at the end of their life. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And uh, the, um, uh, and over the um, 40 years since then, that sort of threshold of how big a thing do you worry about to make sure it doesn't re-enter uncontrolled has come down. So mm -hmm. that uh, now I think anything over 10 tons, mm -hmm. unless you're Chinese, anything over 10 tons, you make you try and make sure it doesn't re-enter uncontrolled. This might, I mean, they're sort of fairly new to the game, right? This might be something that develops just in the years to come uh, for the Chinese as well? I think so. I think so. Yeah. I think they are, they have been slow to adopt the norms of the rest of the space community, but they do do it. And so mm -hmm. similarly, uh, the other big resource we have in space is the geostationary orbit, which is full of communication satellites. And it's a very sort of thin ring around the earth. And so starting in the early 1980s, people realized as it started to become popular, yeah, we don't want to have lots of dead satellites in the geo ring. Mm -hmm. And so it became a norm that you, at the end of your life, you leave a little bit of fuel to boost your satellite up uh, out of the geostationary ring to what we call the geo graveyard. Mm -hmm. uh, Why do you boost it up rather than uh, down? It would take huge amounts of, it's so, geo is really high. It's 36,000 kilometers up. 
So you need enormous amounts of fuel to deorbit. It's just not practical. So uh, is, is there any conceivable case in which this space junk could be used in the future? Like, you know, you just have a, you have orbits filled with aluminium and all sorts of, I, I guess that, that everything's moving too fast to make use of. Uh... Well, except in the geograveyard, right, everything is going around the same direction at equatorial orbit uh, mm -hmm. and, and the speeds are not as high as they are in LEO because the gravity drops off as R squared. Mm -hmm. and, and, so, uh, and so, yeah, I wonder if the geograveyard could be used for salvage at some point. Um, what's happening now is that there's a, Northrop Grumman has started a business where they will launch a, new, a little satellite to go up to your old geostationary satellite and dock with it before it becomes junk, but as it just before it becomes junk, uh, uh, to give it an extra ten years' life. They inject uh, fuel, or what? What do they do? Uh, well, no, they have the fuel on the on. The, so the the it's like a parasite satellite that that locks onto you, and it provides the fuel and pointing, huh, uh, uh, to your existing communications payload. I see. Right? And so it's essentially a booster pack, you know, that that you strap onto your satellite and and has that it, been done? That they're doing yeah, that. It's been done twice now. Oh, I, I'd never heard of that either. Yeah, just in the past couple of years. So it's that's a new business, uh, and it's not clear how cost effective it is because once your satellite's already fifteen years old and you're doing this. Um, do you really want to launch another satellite to use this old communications technology? Or do you really want to just junk your old satellite and buy it? Like, do you really want your 15 year old PC, <laughs> right? To, you know, open it up and put a new uh, 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 power supply in? Mm. Or do you want to, you know, send it to the Nakas yard and, and buy a, a, a shiny new PC with all the latest uh, mm. USB threes and <laughs> whatever connectors and stuff like that, right? Uh, in my case, right, I'm going to buy the new PC because it, mm. you know it's just too painful trying to use stuff that's that old. And I think that's going to be the case for a lot of communication satellite companies. So I, I'm I'm not super convinced that the market for this keep your satellite working uh, another few years is big enough, but we'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. On the, on the commercial side is, is the entry of, I, I, we have these new constellations. So for example, um, well, what's the one that SpaceX is uh, running at the moment? Starlink. The Starlink is, is this in some sense a disaster from the point of view of space junk? I mean, because you have these huge yes. constant, or, or are they low enough that they, their orbits degrade quick or it's a disaster. Is it? I think so. Well, so yeah, uh, SpaceX has been persuaded now to put all of their constellation in this lower Leo area where if they die, they will re-enter on a 20 year time scale. But, but that time scale, right, is okay when you have a thousand satellites in orbit. It's, I don't think it's uh, uh, short enough when you have 30,000 or 100,000 satellites in orbit, right? So this is a, a real qualitative change in the amount of stuff in low Earth orbit. Uh, OneWeb, which is the other company that's already deploying its, its constellation, is up at 1,200 kilometers. And mm -hmm. so that's, that's even more of an issue. They, they say their satellites are more reliable and that they can bring them down at the end of their missions, but, but you know, we'll see. Um, uh, and then, you know, Amazon is getting in 
for the game, they're currently only planning 3,000 satellites, but, you know, they're Amazon, so they could easily, you know, invest yeah. more later. Uh, and China has a plan to launch 13,000 satellites. Mm -hmm. and, and so we're going from, you know, we've already changed in the past five years uh, in a state where most objects in low LEO were debris, mm -hmm. uh, and they still are in upper LEO, but in low LEO now, most objects are active satellites mm -hmm. above in the above 10 centimeters in the catalog. And, and so that's a real change in the environment. Most objects in the lower part of orbit are active satellites and not junk, and that's a change. Um, and so, you know, yes, they're active, so they can dodge each other if, in a good day, <laughs> right? Okay, so all the satellites in Starlink actually have the ability to shift their... They're not like these CubeSats, which are much smaller and don't have right. any... And that's a problem. There are lots and lots of CubeSats that can't change their orbit and can't dodge. Starlink, in principle, can dodge hmm. uh, um, if it has good enough information. Mm -hmm. and, and if it hasn't been hit by something else and if it hasn't, that, it that hasn't killed it. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, they do all the math to say, yeah, you know, we can maintain this constellation safely. But I, you know, as, as a physicist, right, in training, I worry about the, you know, the non-Gaussian tail of the error distribution, right? The systematic mm -hmm. errors and things like that. That When that, you're putting more and more and more up there. Yeah, especially. It, 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 right. You start to get to the point where two unlikely things mm -hmm. that are non-statistical things right are more likely to happen is this uh, sort of like a track sorry for interrupting is this sort of like a tragedy of the commons sort of situation i mean no one really owns space and so you know you you put your satellite up and you think about your what you need to do with no sort of thought to what happens 10 years down the track 20 years down the track do we need to have the you know real estate that is sold out to groups or yeah i think so i i think we're starting to get to the point now where low earth orbit certainly is a finite resource we already do this for the geostationary orbit for communication satellites in that the international telecommunications union coordinates longitudes around the earth Mm -hmm. where certain countries can put satellites mm -hmm. uh, and it's controversial uh um in low earth orbit we're going to have height ranges that get doled out i think and mm -hmm. and th that is not in place yet but it's going to have to come uh and so yeah it, it it's a problem uh we up until now low earth orbit's been a free-for-all every country's satellites going in every which direction past each other and it's sort of like uh, a bit, you know, it's not like a freeway where everyone has lanes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's not the Autobahn. It's, uh, it, it's, it's like a big open space where everyone's going at hundreds of miles an hour in different directions and just dodging one another now and again. Uh, it's mm -hmm. crazy. Uh, and... Uh, um, uh, it can't go on indefinitely. Not, not. Mm -hmm. It doesn't scale another mm -hmm. couple of factors of ten, I think. Uh, and so, uh, you know, at the moment, there is regulation by uh, individual countries, licensing agencies. You can't. If you want to launch a satellite, you have to do it under the aegis of what, in the United Nations terms, a launching state, mm -hmm. right? So you have to be licensed by a country, mm -hmm. and then the country is liable. Right. Oh, I if, see. if I'm Elon and I put up a satellite and my satellite hits a Chinese satellite, I'm 
SpaceX isn't liable, the United States is liable. Okay, so... And therefore, has, if, I'm, if I'm the FCC and I'm going to give you a license to say, yes, you can launch your satellite, in theory, I should do my due diligence to make sure that I'm, you know, I, as the United States, am willing to take on the responsibility that, uh, uh, of, of you having this satellite in orbit. Uh, and so that's the theory of why things should be okay, because, you know, if you try and do something too dangerous, you won't get your launch license. And that works in a world where the government regulators are not really owned by the corporations. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like you're not too confident that things are going to be working out uh, in the, quite this way. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, in certainly in most Western countries and indeed uh, um, uh, to some extent in, in, in China, it goes a bit the other way, but, but the, the separation between the, the, the commercial enterprises and the uh, regulators is not what one might want. I guess there's a precedence, right? When when the the Soviet satellite uh, hit Canada, there was a payout. In terms of the Skylab incident, did did Australia get a payout from the states? You know, uh, no. I think um, there was one place I think which, like you know, uh, just some private some school or something that that had had something land in its yard that, that kind of demanded compensation publicly. And there was a whip round by some American space enthusiasts to send them a few hundred bucks or something. There was something cute like that, but no, in a formal way, there was not, there was no compensation. Um, and, and uh, uh, in general, there's not a lot of, you know, because the Canada Russia thing was sort of settled out of court, Mm -hmm. All right. There's not a lot of legal precedent uh, uh, for for really implementing this liability convention. Um, but yeah, I mean, and so yeah, that's that's an issue. Um, so so I think a lot of these things. It's just like you know we were talking about uh, um, you know fifty years into the space age, right? As we get into this new era where just things are just so much busier and so much more is going on a lot of things that were let slide until mm -hmm. now are going to have to be formalized. It's, it's, it's like the boundary of space thing, right? Where, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because there wasn't a lot of activity in this liminal area between air and space before you were either well below or well above, it wasn't so important to say where space starts. Now there's a lot more activity, both military and tourist, at, at, at this, you know, 80 to 100 kilometer level. And so it becomes more important. Mm -hmm. are you, are you, it sounds like you're optimistic then that this is something that's going to be a little bit like um, the hole in the ozone layer. It's something that we're going to, you know, as, as instants pick up and it starts to become, you know, financially a problem when your satellite's getting hit by junk and so on. It, it sounds like you might uh, be optimistic about us. Uh, I think, I think optimistic is too strong a word. I think there's a path to get out of this, um, that whether it will happen or not, you know, uh, it remains to be seen. But, but I think that um, we will, you know, it will follow this usual environmental trajectory, which mm -hmm. is things will get really bad. Finally, it gets to the point where it's really impacting the corporation's bottom line. And then they will scramble to do something. Uh, and it will be a bit too little too late. 
uh, and uh, but maybe there's a path to thread that just enough, just in time. And and uh, so yeah, I I I don't I don't know what will happen. I don't know how bad it will get before people. You know, there's a lot of like for the active debris removal. Uh, right now, NASA and a lot of the other uh, U.S. government agencies take the view that. Oh, well, you know, the big problem is that these Russian rocket stages and you'd have to get legal permission from the Russians to go and take them out of orbit if you wanted to, to clean them up. And ooh, there's no way that would happen. And, and, uh, um, and uh, you know, I, I mean, that's just pathetic, in my opinion. I, I, I think mm -hmm. that, you know, the, <clears throat> the Russians can't be oblivious to this and maybe if you do it as a joint venture you can make mm -hmm. something happen and and uh um so i um i think at the <coughs> at the management level there's still a lot of um yeah this is too complicated it would, it would be actual work so we don't want to deal with it and mm -hmm. and uh, uh and i think then it's going to have to get a bit worse before those that mindset changes to crap we're really in trouble we need to fix this now mm -hmm. i think maybe a, a a good uh way to wrap up this discussion is sort of could you give some part if you were given if i gave you the the magic wand where you're in control uh what what's your path forward uh to solving this issue if if you if you were given uh the crown yeah i would say um set up initially a bilateral or trilateral agency, uh, perhaps uh, coming out of what's called the Interagency Debris Commission, which is a technocratic uh, joint venture between uh, the various space agencies, um, to do demonstration projects for active debris removal mm. and uh, uh, with, with, you know, <coughs> an American satellite, uh, uh, an American garbage truck taking a, um, uh, uh, you know, an Indian satellite out of orbit, for example, or something like that, just to get, you know, the, the international legal stuff established and then try and bring the Russians in, try and bring the Chinese in uh, and try and have some sort of international agency that levies, that, that does some licensing mm -hmm. or orbits and launches and levies attacks on orbits and launches that can be used to fund the active debris removal. Mm -hmm. um, there's a bit of an issue here in that, as in many environmental problems, it's that that means that the new players are paying maybe more than their share of the cleanup for the old, for the, you know, the cold warrior uh, mess that was made in the 60s and 70s. And so there's going to be some objection to that. But I think it's the most practical way forward. I guess on the other side, uh, just practically new new stuff that goes up, you you don't shoot that lens cap into space anymore. You don't. Right, exactly, and that you know there have been evolving norms to do that, and that that's you know you used to be explosive bolts are cheaper than a hinge, so you use the explosive mm -hmm. bolts. Now people put these things on hinges, so that that mm -hmm. evolution has been happening, mm -hmm. uh, and I think maybe formalizing that or um, uh, you know the the. But you have to look at what are the biggest impacts. I think the biggest impacts are the largest objects that are left in orbit uncontrolled. Mm -hmm. So you want to just really focus on that for a bit and try and clean that up. 
um, and as well as better transparency. Um, we haven't got into the whole stuff about how you know uh, how satellites get registered with the UN, how many satellites now are in orbit where we don't know. We know that these three satellites are these three objects we're tracking, but we don't know which is which because they're all dead yeah. <laughs> and, and they didn't never phoned home. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, there's all kinds of regulatory stuff that needs to be upgraded for the 21st century and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and be on a more international basis. So an international space traffic control, I think is, is, is part of what we need because we have um, uh, right now, pretty much the whole world depends on uh, the U.S. Space Force for knowing where the debris is. So if you launch a satellite, you know where your own satellite is because it's phoning home. But if you want to know where another satellite is, you go to the Space Force uh, and use their tracking, uh, even if you're in China, probably, uh, for the most part, right? If you want to know where the Indian satellite is, there's no equivalent comprehensive service in China or Russia, as far as I know. Uh, and so maybe the thing to do is China needs to get its act together and have its own space tracking system that, that does this. And then and <clears throat> the U.S. Space Force tracking system is sort of at some level going to be moved to the U.S. Commerce Department, which would mm -hmm. make it easier for it to engage internationally. Mm -hmm. Right. Because uh, a lot of people might not want to engage with the U.S. military. Uh, and, and so that would then, you know, eventually you might get a international coordination body that would do space tracking internationally, that instead of doing what they do now, which is to say, oh, uh, um, uh, ESA, your satellite uh, is, so ESA and China, uh, uh, your two satellites are gonna pass within a mile of each other tomorrow at three, one of you might wanna move right that's where things are right now we would have a more space traffic control thing where instead of saying that they would say isa move down one mile china move up one mile mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right rather than leaving it to emails between the isa and china operators to 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 decide who's going to figure it out who's going to blink right <laughs> and yeah. and so so i think that's the you know we've got to go to something like that in the long term if we want to sustain uh the level of traffic that we have now never mind the level that's envisaged and in in your if you could uh enact a scheme am i allowed to shoot my tesla roadster into space or are there limits on that as well i you know i i think you have to be open to all kinds of uses of space uh and and so i think i think you manage the resource uh in in a way that uh, yeah, you can you shoot your Tesla roaster into orbit around the sun, which is what Elon did. Mm. Uh, and just so everyone knows, it's it's that it's still bolted to the rocket stage. It's not floating around <laughs> the car. They 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 angled the camera so you didn't notice that. Uh, but but uh, that that thing, yeah, it's in orbit. You know, tell me what its orbit is, mm -hmm. right? Uh, uh, and make that officially, you know, in an official place so that people know how to avoid it. And if you're going to put it in Earth orbit, you know, is it within the quota of that orbit for this year? Mm -hmm. Right? Get in the queue, I, I guess it's going to be. 
I have to, while I have you here, I have to ask you some non-junk related questions if, if I'm, if I'm able. Sure. So quick question, you're given the op opportunity, one way ticket to Mars. Do you take it or not? One way ticket. I mean, it depends what's on the other end, right? Is it Mars as it is today? Or, you know, Musk City is there waiting. M Musk waiting. City, Musk City. Yeah. Um, you know, I think today, no, but 10 years from now, as I'm getting older and, you know, I'm going to die anyway. Uh, yeah, maybe I, I could see that retire on Mars. I mean, it's going to be grim. It's going to be, <laughs> even in Musk City, it's, it's a very frontier lifestyle, right? And maybe, a, um, you know, there's all kinds of issues about, to what extent are you Musk's slave if you go there, right? Is he is he absolute monarch of the city or how do you govern it? Uh, mm. Some really interesting work by uh, an, uh, a British uh, academic called Charles Cockle about what he calls freedom engineering. Uh, mm. uh, how can you design into your Mars city decentralization so that, so, so that the man can't rule everything? Mm -hmm. Right. Don't put your oxygen generation in one central place where the king can control it. Uh, mm -hmm. Things like that. Right. Um, and and so so I think I, uh, I think it's going to be. Uh, um, I mean, seriously, I don't I, I, I do believe that there will be appealing settlements on Mars 500 years from now. I don't mm -hmm. think there will. I think in my lifetime, if there's a settlement on Mars, uh it, it's gonna need someone a little hardier than i am it's gonna be pretty rough it's gonna be pretty rough yeah and do you think uh do you think the the first so do you think the mars is sort of mars uh, sorry Musk's mars direct plan is is the way you'd go or, or do you think you know gateway uh, as nasa proposes is the way to go in order to start a settling and setting down uh you know a colony um, it's not clear that the, the gateway is that helpful. Um, I do think, you know, there have been some interesting ideas in uh, coming out of places like Boeing, surprisingly, in, in the years, which you think of as a fairly staid company. But, but they had this nice idea of assemble your Mars ship basically at L2 mm -hmm. on the edge of uh, the Earth's gravity well, mm -hmm. so that then it just needs a little push to, to send it to Mars. Uh, um, and, uh, and so I think, you know, compared to 20 years ago, people being a lot more innovative about, um, ways you might go ahead and, uh, and do this, uh, it's still the biggest challenge I think is still landing very large objects on Mars, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, which is a hard thing to do. It's easier to land objects on a planet with no air, mm -hmm. use rockets or on a planet with lots of air like the earth where you can cushion your, your full, but just a little bit of atmosphere is kind of like the worst case. Um, and, and so, so I think, you know, it's going to take a while before the technology is really there. I will see how Starship goes. Um, you know, I wish, I wish Elon luck with that. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I, I don't really know what the successful approach is going to be. I think the exciting thing is mm -hmm. that there are 
we're, I think we're, again, we're, we, we're beyond the era of a space program where we have a project that is going to go to Mars. We are, space is a place where many people are active. They're going to try different approaches. And, uh, and I think we'll see, I think we'll see several tried and some will fail and maybe one will succeed. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a, a financial angle you could play for colonizing Mars? Is there some product that you can see that's obviously there that will make this viable? Absolutely not. Not in the short term. I mean, and I think the uh, settling Mars, I'm, I'm trying to avoid colonizing, but, but uh, is having a human community on Mars um, in the long run, right? If you want it to be sustainable, yeah, it's got to have economic production and trade with Earth. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily have to be things that you absolutely can't make on Earth. Uh, uh, you can imagine, uh, especially if it's information uh, economy, right? You can imagine software companies based on Mars making, making money because uh, <clears throat> they're transporting the software from Mars very cheap. is cheap, right? <laughs> uh, and, and so, so I think, um, you know, you, but I think it's like a couple hundred years of investment before, I mean, one of the things right in the long run is it's pointless unless in the long run, the, the community is entirely self-sustaining. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean there's no trade, but it means that the point of doing this is that if Earth goes away, the community can still survive on Mars and you still have humans, right? Mm-hmm. And and so for that, you need to replicate our entire economy, uh, our entire industrial base. So it's not enough to grow potatoes, right? You have to grow semiconductor fab factories, mm-hmm. right? And that's not a, tra- you know, so how you do that, how you, Essentially, what you have to do is to make our entire civilization portable, mm-hmm. which I think is a fascinating idea uh, and, and, a fast, and a worthwhile project because that will have benefits back on Earth uh, in terms of making, you know, making our civilization more robust against local disasters and things like that. Uh, and, and so, so I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that, but I think people, I think the, the, the space settlement fans really underestimate what's involved in, in doing that, in, in having a really self-sufficient civilization, uh, on another world. And, and so, uh, particularly a, a world that as, as Shannon Sterone has pointed out, uh, famously recently is, is a really hostile place. That <laughs> uh, wants to kill you more or less. wants to kill you. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, I mean, so does earth at some level, but, but, but yeah, it's, it's much more hostile than earth. And so, so, um, uh, Sterone sees that as a reason not to go. I see it as a reason to, just brace yourself for the fact that it's going to be centuries before you succeed uh, in, ter- in terms of, you know, it's a, it's a tough problem, but it's an interesting problem. Uh, and, uh, and so it's going to require, it's going to require more than one billionaire, I think. If, if there's, you know, if, if intellectual capital becomes a thing that you sell, maybe, maybe that's, 
maybe that's what the uh, I mean that's essentially what you're saying, right? That the you're going to be selling software or ideas that are generated. Yeah, I mean maybe uh, uh, what else? I mean there may be things on Mars that uh, you know maybe the low gravity will let you make products that uh, you're of interest on Earth. Um, I think it's more likely that uh, freefall, you know, that that, that mm -hmm. space habitats will uh, will make products that are that are uh, hard to make on Earth. But but um, uh, you know the yeah. So it, it's it's not clear yet what uh, uh, what that era will find valuable and and will be cheap enough to transport back to Earth. Right, but it's got to be whatever you make. It's got to be very low max. <laughs> and, and my my uh, my last unrelated question <laughs> is to do with so you've mentioned uh, China's uh, program a number of times. Some of the stuff that they're doing is actually pretty amazing that they're able to, to do it in the short period of time that they've, they've, I mean, they've gone essentially from not having a space program to, to putting rovers on Mars sort of first attempt, which is really impressive. What's the significance, uh, do you think, of, of China entering the game um, and, and sort of their accomplishments? How should we view uh, what, what they're doing and, and uh, where they're headed? Yeah, no, I think it's hugely important. I think that China was like not so interested in space until the early 90s. And then they made a strategic decision to like invest and catch up. And so for the past 20 years, they've been just investing like gangbusters and really, you know, going through every step along the way to replicate what the superpowers had done in the Cold War. And now they've caught up more or less. And, and, uh, and now they're able to, to be, a, they are now a first ranked player. And I think that that hasn't really sunk into some of the other space agencies because they're so used to thinking of China as behind. Um, but no, they're, they're a first-ranked player along with the US, Europe, and Russia. Hmm. Uh, uh, with India and Japan, by the way, in the second rank, but coming up uh, close behind. Uh, and um, the other thing about the, the, the very impressive, uh, you know, the, these government Chinese programs are very impressive what's happened just in the last few years is that there is a finally a true commercial Chinese space sector that uh, uh, didn't really exist before. Before you had companies that were nominally commercial, but you know, all of their board of directors was the Politburo or something, <laughs> right? It was, uh, um, they were fig leaves, but, but now you have real commercial startups in China doing space. And so this commercial revolution in space that we've been talking about is not just a US European one, it's a Chinese one as well. And I think that's hugely significant uh, for the years to come. Escaped Sapiens.